This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, a former NATO Supreme Allied Commander on what he thinks NATO's response should be to Russia's war. Then, how to step up the pressure on Putin by cutting Russian profits from energy sales and increasing the effectiveness of American sanctions. And it's been called the Oscars of Public Service. Federal employees are recognized for and celebrated for their noteworthy and inspiring achievements with the Service to America Awards. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Russia has warned NATO that transport carrying weapons in Ukraine are targets. And as Putin tries to threaten and weaken the alliance, more countries are seeking NATO membership. General Wesley Clark is a former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe and a senior fellow at the UCLA Burkle Center. General, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. Can you start by explaining to us the strategic importance of the city of Mariupol to the Russians? If the Russians seize and clear Mariupol, they have an unimpeded route back to Russian territory that gives them control of the seacoast all the way up to, let's say, Mykolaiv currently. And then they're attacking Mykolaiv and they want Odessa. So this not only provides a a path for reinforcement of Russian forces, but it provides enormous bargaining leverage against Ukraine and the West and if they hold this, it seals Ukraine's fate as an economically impoverished nation because it won't be able to export its uh, fantastic agricultural production. So is getting control of Mariupol a make-or-break um, thing for the Russians? Well, it, it is in the sense that they've assigned it as an objective. The truth is that if you could isolate that garrison inside that steel plant and reroute roads around it, they could let them survive there for 10 years, but that's not the Russian way. They want it cleaned out. They want the victory parade there on um, on Monday to uh, show that they've conquered Mariupol. It's gonna, it may be their only significant achievement, and uh, it's something Putin probably take a lot of credit for. So you said this, General, that Russia has shown it will execute a ruthless campaign of filtration. What does that mean? This is ethnic cleansing. This is essentially genocide. This is the effort to erase Ukraine as a state, as a culture, and eliminate any people who might stand up for their rights or their culture or the return of an independent Ukraine. So what they do is they bring the people to camps and they uh, take their documents, they take their phones, they look at their contacts, they check to see if they've got any markings, tattoos that would indicate they were associated with the Ukrainian forces, They um, talk to informers, they find out who and what activities these people have. Um, And um, if they're men or uh, activists, uh, they get eliminated. Now, we're not sure exactly how many they've killed, but we're pretty sure that uh, military age men who've been taken into these filtration camps are eliminated unless they are, have previously been identified as informants. Um, the women and children are passed on, the old people, uh, they let them go. There's no telling what's happening to some of the young women there. There are reports that they've been sent into 
uh, and the human trafficking through a Russian organized crime. So uh, a lot of this won't come out until more of Russia's forces are pushed back and, uh, and more of the people who've lived under this occupation can talk about it. What kind of military support do you suggest Ukraine needs that they haven't already gotten to end these Russian attacks? Well, they certainly need uh, more artillery and more ammunition. We're trying to get it in, but it's still insufficient. Uh, the, the Russians started with several thousand tubes of artillery, and uh, the West is providing a couple of hundred tubes, uh, the United States providing 90. Yes, it's good, and we're, I think we're providing some long-range rockets, uh, but they need more of this and more ammunition. They need the targeting, which uh, we're now providing more of, real-time intelligence targeting. And then they need to take their territorial manpower, the reserves that never really got equipped and trained, and get those reserves organized into combat units that have offensive capability. It may take two months, four months, six months, eight months. But Ukraine has to regain the occupied territory. It's not going to be enough if Russia suddenly says, let's say on the 9th of May, oh, it's all over. Uh, we're creating new Russia. Uh, there is no Ukraine. Uh, Poland, you can have the rest of what's left over here. If they were to say that, it's absolutely an unacceptable outcome. And Russia has to be pushed back. You cannot allow an aggressor the reward of taking this, keeping this territory. I mean, do you think the administration's initial fears of escalation have been unfounded? I mean, that was one of the reasons that they didn't want to send, you know, fighter jets and, and very advanced weaponry. I think there's still fear of escalation, and I think the administration looks at it very carefully. Um, but um, I think the big change has been the recognition that the Ukrainians actually are very, very competent. This is not Afghanistan. These are not Iraqis from tribal groups who have been paid to wear a uniform. These are people who are really fighting for their country, and they're educated, they're skilled, they pick up things very quickly, and they're determined to hold on to their territory. So I think that's really empowered the administration to move beyond its initial posture. And General, do you think that NATO has been strengthened or weakened as a result of Russia's war on Ukraine? Well, it's certainly been strengthened at least superficially. There are always going to be differences internally in NATO because of the political systems. When you have democracies, everybody listens to his, to his electorate or her electorate. But the point is, I think that many people who thought they could deal with Putin. Uh, uh, he's a businessman. He's uh, inter They're interested in money. Uh, they're just like us. Uh, the bankers speak our language, all this kind of stuff. I think that's mostly been eliminated. Even in Germany, in the Socialist Party, they recognize they've made mistakes historically in assuming Russia was going to be perpetually benign. It isn't. And I would assume that you welcome uh, Finland and Sweden's addition to NATO then. I think it would be a very important step. We've looked at it for years. Of course, they've done exercises. When I was NATO commander, I was invited officially into Sweden and into Finland and had great relationships with their chiefs of defense and their governments. But um, having them officially part of the alliance, I think it's an important step forward diplomatically, not only for what it says about Europe, but what it says to, let's say, the Middle Eastern countries, to India, to those in Southeast Asia who may say, well, you know, the West is decadent, it's falling apart, and uh, Biden uh, is not a leader and so forth. We've heard all this trash talk. Uh, but I think the response of NATO, and I think the addition of two new members, 
respected Scandinavian countries. All right. Well, General, we're, we're out of time, but thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you, Mimi. Coming next on Government Matters, stepping up the pressure on Putin by cutting profits from energy sales. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. and Western allies have sought ways to step up the pressure on Putin to end his war. Among those ways is sanctions and bans on Russian energy imports. Clay Lowry is an executive vice president at the Institute of International Finance and the former assistant secretary for international affairs at the Treasury Department. Clay, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So the European Union is proposing a ban on all um, imports from Russia by the end of this year. What's the significance of that? So it's significant largely in that Russia's exports are almost are dominated by oil, natural gas, and other energy exports. So they about over 50% of their exports are energy related, which translates for Russia into a huge percentage of their revenues, their fiscal revenues. Um, so banning all of that, which the United States and Canada had already done, as well as the United Kingdom and others, is a fairly significant step because it's a big deal for Europe. One caveat. The European Union has basically proposed it. It has to pass through all of the countries in the European Union, and there are still a couple of countries that haven't s said yes to this because they are so dependent on, on Russian uh, gas and uh, exports. I mean, oil exports, excuse me. You know, despite the sanctions, there's been a rise in energy prices all over um, the world. Yes. And my understanding is this has given Russia a $60 billion surplus. So is this having the opposite effect? Is it, you know, giving them a windfall? So it's a great question. I think that it is getting them a little bit of a windfall. Now, remember, there's a couple things that to keep in mind. It is true prices are up, but of course volumes are down because they're not able to export as much. They're not exporting anything to the United States, basically, and to a lot of other countries. Um, if this oil embargo goes into place, it will take a little bit of time. The Europeans have said they can't do it right away. Um, that will take down, again, more of their uh, uh, exports. Obviously, price makes up for some of it, but there's a lot of other uh, sanctions that are out there that are not just on the energy, energy sector that are going to harm Russia's economy. Speaking of which, you know, a lot of analysts had said that the Russian economy would collapse. Yeah. It's not even close. Right. So what's going on? What's the long-term impact to the Russian economy? So I think that san the sanctions regime couldn't be expected to actually collapse everything right away. Instead, it would harm the financial markets, in and particularly the banking system. But over time, that will actually harm the economy. And so, so for instance, at where I work at the Institute of International Finance, we predict that basically the Russian economy will drop by about 15% this year. Now, some people are saying 10%. Either way, that's significant. Um, so. Let me just put that into perspective. In the United States, during the financial crisis about a dozen years ago, our economy in one year, and remember how catastrophic it was, dropped by two and a half percent. So Russia's economy, by these calculations, would be four to six times worse than that. It would basically take Russia back 15 years in terms of their economic uh, growth. So that is a pretty significant impact. Now, is it going to happen right away? No. But you will start seeing it happening over this quarter that we're in, Q Q2 and over the remainder of the year.
I don't have to tell you that Americans are feeling the pain at the pump. Is there a way to punish Putin without punishing ourselves? My short answer is no. Um, uh, you can try to mitigate it, um, but uh, we were already suffering from inflation before this war happened, um, including higher commodity prices. This has exacerbated the problem, um, and, uh, and those prices have continued to go up. Um, I think that there is going to be a little bit of economic pain because of that. Some of our economic pain has nothing to do with the Russia-Ukraine situation, but, it, but it, this clearly has hurt it. It's also hurt it in a different way, which is really not about commodity prices, which is just uncertainty in the markets and uncertainty in what's going on in the geopolitical situation. Um, there's not much you can do about that outside of continuing to pro uh, make progress on fighting against this aggression that the Russians have shown. Looking ahead, hopefully to the end of this war, uh, obviously, Ukraine's going to need a lot of money to rebuild the country. Yeah. Is there a way for the Treasury Department to seize Russian assets to use that to rebuild the country? I think there's going to be a lot of lawyers looking at that really uh, very carefully right now, both government lawyers and private sector lawyers. Um, and the reason is because it kind of comes into basically, has there been some sort of a legal maneuver that you can take the assets? So you, you see that in criminal cases every now and then. But you're taking a sovereign's assets, so that's going to be a harder thing to do. It, it gets you towards something called expropriation, so you have to be really careful about that. Um, and I think that the Treasury Department has said that they're looking into it, um, and there are others that are talking about it as well. But you want to be careful because it could lead towards lawsuits um, going forward. I think that what, in, from at helping the Ukrainians um, without doing that, you see that the Pre Biden administration has put forward a major financial package to the Congress to see whether or not they can get foreign assistance for Ukraine. The European Union has said that they also are going to be doing that. Obviously, they are, this is part of a rebuilding process for Ukraine, hopefully if the war ends soon. But um, those are going to be probably a little more significant. I think there's going to be a lot of legal analysis done before there's a freezing, not just frozen, freezing of assets, but taking of those assets. What do we know about what China is likely to do? Do you think that they will sanction Russia? Will they stay neutral? Will they evade sanctions and support? Uh, Russia, what do you think? So, China has walked a very careful line here. They have clearly not been supportive, overly supportive of the sanctions. At the same time, they have not been overly supportive of let's get around the sanctions. So they've kind of like your, your line about being sort of neutral, maybe a little bit leaning some of the rhetoric towards Russia. But um, I think where the concern will be is when, if the EU takes offline the oil exports, Will Russia be able to diversify those exports to China or to other countries, China being obviously the biggest one? We'll see on that. We're not sure. There have been Chinese companies who have actually followed sort of the, the same path as U.S. and European companies, which is basically pull, their, pull out of Russia and not do as much. Um, but I think that your question is an open question, which we don't have a solution to right now. All right, Clay. Well, we'll watch that. And thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Coming next on Government Matters, the Service to America Award celebrates the inspiring achievements of government workers. We'll be right back. The Sammies have been dubbed the Oscars of government service. The awards are given out each year to extraordinary federal employees who have made the country better, safer, and stronger. 
Jordan Lapierre is the Senior Communications Manager for the Partnership for Public Service, who administers the awards. Jordan, welcome. Hi, Mimi. Thanks for having me. So government employees generally don't get a whole lot of recognition for their work. Tell me about these awards. Give us a brief history of how the idea came about. Yeah, we founded the Samuel J. Heyman Service to America Medals 21 years ago. Um, and as part of our effort to create a culture of recognition in government, we kind of have a two-pronged strategy. So one is to make the federal workforce feel appreciated and understood for the work that they do from their leadership, so internal. And then there's the external strategy. So how are we getting these great stories, these great achievements out to the public? We did some research recently that we found that, and this isn't surprising, that trust in government, public trust in government, is pretty low and has been declining over a number of years. But what we found was that the best way to beat back that skepticism was to break government down to the role of the individual, to tell stories about what individual government employees are doing on a day-to-day -day basis to make all of our lives better. And that's what the Sammies is all about. So how many finalists are there this year and how are they selected? Like, how do you actually find them? Yeah, we have 30 finalists this year and we spent a multi-month process um, talking with agencies, collecting nominations. This year we had over 400 nominations. And we take a, a, a long period of time to look over all of those nominations and to really consider the achievements and to consider the stories that these individuals are putting forward to us. So we talk to the nominators, to their superiors, to their subordinates, to their colleagues, to people outside government who are impacted by the work that these people do, uh, to be able to understand these stories and really craft an interesting and compelling narrative around what each of these people have accomplished. So before talking about some of the finalists yeah. themselves, talk about the categories that you use. Yes, we have six categories this year, and they're spanning the gamut from things like career achievement and management excellence to emerging leaders, which recognize those 35 and under in the workforce. We also have science, technology, and environment, COVID-19 response, and then the safety, security, and international affairs category. So tell me about some of the stories that you're most excited about. So there are 30 of them, like I said, so it's really hard for me to break all of them down, and I would encourage your viewers to go. But I know you go, have favorites. Yes, Jordan. I do. <laughs> I would encourage your viewers to go to servicetoamericamedals.org to read all of these stories and to cast a vote in our People's Choice Contest, which is starting now. Um, you can vote for the stories that impact you the most. Um, but the ones that really you know, stand out to me, I think a couple of things. We've brought back the COVID-19 response category this year because government has had a lot of things to do over the last year in responding to the pandemic. Uh, we've moved from having no vaccines to having tens of millions of shots in arms. A uh, huge accomplishment. And we've, we've recognized a handful of people who have been instrumental in that. Um, there's also a really international flair to a lot of the folks that we're recognizing this year. So we've got an honoree who uh, has worked to increase access to education for those with disabilities around the world. Um, somebody who has created a model for making sure that foreign aid gets delivered in countries where there is internal strife and conflict. Um, when people really need that support, they're still able to get it, even when it's difficult to, to, to provide it. Um, and then a couple of teams who are responsible for um, helping to resettle Afghan citizens who were evacuated um, after we withdrew from Afghanistan uh, last year. 70,000 people who got, who've gotten resettled and get to start a new life here in the United States. You mentioned this before, there, there's a category just for the under 35 crowd. Yeah. Why specifically that? Well, I think it's no surprise that the government workforce is aging. And there isn't a huge crop of young people entering government to fill those slots. And you know we're concerned about a brain drain. And so what we want to do is to lift up those stories of young people who are succeeding earlier in their careers in government and show young people who might be considering a, a career in government that, hey, this is possible. You can really have a big impact and you can do it right from the jump. 
there's also the Service to America Career Achievement Medal. And yeah. this is for, I guess, maybe the other side of the spectrum, which is people that have been making an impact for over 20 years. Talk about how that works. Yeah, so first I should say we're really, really honored to have Paul Volker, Volker's name attached to that medal. I'm really delighted to be able to honor him and the public service that he demonstrated throughout his life uh, with that award. So this is, you know, as you said, 20 years, uh, a really long period of time, people who have done extraordinary work um, over, over that span. Uh, this year we've got a couple of honorees that I think are really exciting and notable. They're all, they're all great, but two stand out to me. Uh, one is, was the former special master for the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund. So she worked to make sure that those who were harmed uh, in, in responding to the 9-11 disaster, both in New York and here at the Pentagon, um, have gotten the, the medical treatment and the, the financial support that they need to be able to live their lives, or if they passed away, that their families were supported. And then a couple of folks who worked on things like fighting climate change and decreasing access to tobacco products for young people, um, things that really impact all of our lives in a meaningful way. And, you know, we're joking that it's kind of like the Oscars, but you guys, yeah. you know, at your your gala, you actually do bring in some stars and some high-level folks. Yeah, the last two years we've done a television special. We're doing that again this year. We're, we'll be bringing in Hollywood to help us tell these stories in an exciting way, and we'll be celebrating the winners this September at the Kennedy Center. Well, Jordan, I want to thank you so much for the work of the partnership and for telling us about the Sammies, and we'll be watching and seeing who, uh, who wins. Thanks so much, Mimi. <laughs> If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers 
as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.